Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The Card Counter. There is a weight a man can accrue. This is where all the good stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed. All in. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. You need someone to stake you. That's what you do, you run a stable. I'm always looking for a good thoroughbred. <laughs> Having been sentenced to 10 years in prison, I learned to count cards. How'd you do that? Poker's all about waiting. Check, raise, re-raise, call. Then something happens. You remember it? This is where all the good stuff happens. They made you the fall guy. You need to back off. You've been around him. He's a mystery. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. This is how it starts. Just a fleeting thought. You might want a piece of what I'm gonna do. Then it builds. Well, what is that? Set things straight. It doesn't matter to me if you did something bad in your past. Nothing, nothing can justify what we did. responsible for our own actions. You know the phrase tilt, just like a pinball. Any man can tilt. You can tilt. Is it possible to know when one reaches the limit? You have to be the strangest poker player I ever met. Oh, you have no idea. 
All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Card Counter, and the story is as follows. William Tell is an ex-military interrogator living under the radar as a low-stakes gambler. Tell's meticulous life is thrown into disarray when he encounters Kirk, a young man looking to commit revenge against a mutual enemy. With backing from mysterious financer Lalinda, Tell takes Kirk on the casino circuit to set him on a new path. However, he finds that the ghosts of the past will not release him so easily. The film is starring Oscar Isaac, Tiffany Haddish, Ty Sheridan, and Willem Dafoe. It is written and directed by Paul Schrader. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Danilo Castro. Hello, everybody. Okay, so this is the follow-up film to Paul Schrader's well, his his only Oscar nomination the man has ever received in nearly 50 years in this business for First Reformed. He was nominated for Best Original Screenplay for that. That movie was so acclaimed and so well received by audiences and critics that there has now been even more anticipation, maybe like more than ever before. Um, this is being released by Focus Features, starring Oscar Isaac, another really, really hot actor at the moment uh, from obviously Star Wars fame and a lot of other films that he has starred in over the last couple of years. I feel like there's so many things to take into account with this movie. You know, obviously, Paul Schrader is somebody who has all of these years of experience in the business, all of these films that he's made, there's a reoccurring theme, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a lot of his work here. Also, too, as I mentioned, there are similarities between this and First Reformed, where it almost feels like he's, I don't want to say forming like an unofficial like trilogy or something like that, but there seems to be like a lot of connections here between the two. Not to mention then also... There's also Paul Schrader, the man to consider here in terms of, you know, some of his social media posts and the way that he views the world, cinema, so on and so forth. So there's a lot really crammed into this one. So I'm genuinely really, really curious. I honestly don't know, Danilo, Josh, what you both think of this movie. I, it was only a second ago before we hopped on here that I learned when you guys actually saw it. So Danilo, why don't we start off with you? You just recently wrote a piece actually on characters in Paul Schrader films and how they do have a reoccurring theme, which I want to hear you uh, describe here and how that ties into the card counter. So what did you ultimately think of the card counter? So Paul Schrader, like you said, there are definitely established tropes, established character types that he likes to use. He calls them his man in a room characters all the way back to Taxi Driver, American Gigolo, Light Sleeper, this movie, First Reformed, there's there's an unofficial series sort of running through all the decades of his career that he sort of documents these particularly isolated male characters sort of on the fringe. And so it's not necessarily a case of going into a Paul Schrader movie, at least for me, and expecting something new. It's more... Uh, just seeing whether he can execute the tropes I know that are going to be there in an interesting way. And so with First Reform, that was a case, I think, of him doing something pretty transcendent with those uh, elements that he likes to use. This one, I was a little bit leery based on the trailer. I don't think it was a tremendously good trailer. Uh, and it was obviously trying to be a little pulpier. Um, a little Renoir than First Reformed was. And so I went into the movie with, I'll say, somewhat measured expectations. Um, and I came out sort of feeling the same way I did about the trailer. I think there are good things here, but I think it's a bit of a hodgepodge of 
things from his earlier films. And while I like the central performance, I do have some issues with some of the characterization and some of the writing that we'll get into. So ultimately, just to keep it condensed, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag for me. I echo a lot of the sentiments that you just expressed there, Danilo. Okay. I walked out of my screening of this movie and I overheard some people, you know, saying how much they enjoyed this and all I could think of to myself was did we did did we watch a totally different movie? <laughs> but if there's one thing I'll give Paul Schrader credit for, it's that he comes from that era of filmmakers, you know, back in the 70s, 80s where that style of what Martin Scorsese, who's an executive producer on this film and he's had close collaborations with before, would classify as quote-unquote cinema, that basically is on display in all of his works, including this. And I think that that kind of sensibility is something that people still respond to, even if the execution is a bit muddled sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, I think people just appreciate the effort and the ambition to create something that is not in line with what a 2021 film typically looks like today. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I agree with that. So, Josh, what did you think of the card counter? I am similarly mixed on this movie. Um, I think that when it first started, like the first half of this movie is kind of rough for me. I thought it was like really slow, very dull. The story didn't really have a lot of momentum to it. And I really found myself struggling to connect to the overall narrative that was being crafted. And while I think that Oscar Isaac was giving a good performance throughout that section, I just really found myself struggling to really connect with it. And I think about the midway point, things do kind of pick up. I think the story kind of has a more focused line of sight as to where it's going, whether or not it's really all that interesting or believable is another question, but at least it had a focus at that point. And I think that allowed me to get a little bit more invested in what it was doing. It kind of felt like the filmmaking started to become a little bit more involved at that point as well. And ultimately, I think it's a movie that is really just, you know, sort of a simple character study, which I normally really love. I, I love character story, uh, character studies in this regard. But uh, I do think that not all of it holds together quite so well, but there's enough in here that I think kind of slightly leans me into the positive. Most of that is Oscar Isaac and some of the filmmaking in the second half. Um, there are other performances that I do not really like, which we will talk about. So it's, it's messy. It doesn't always work, but I do think that overall I'm like slightly positive on it, which I guess is the best thing I can say about the film right now. Okay. I am more intrigued than ever. Because, Josh, I like the first half of this movie wow. more than the second half. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Absolutely. Uh, so I'll just say from a general thought standpoint, I agree with both of you. Mixed bag. Maybe mixed for the opposite reasons, though, which I'm excited to uh, get into here a little bit. So I do feel that the elements that work best in this movie are actually its setup because there is an aura of mystery surrounding William Tell in the very beginning. I also do like getting acclimated with the 
gambling casino world and how Paul Schrader explains to the viewer um, basically the house advantage versus, you know, the player advantage and things like that. I really enjoyed like those elements of the movie. And especially, you know, when we meet William Tell, he's going to different hotel rooms, different casinos. He talks about how he does count cards, but it's okay as long as he doesn't win big, which, you know, we think that if you count cards and get caught, like immediately you're in deep shit. But he's basically saying, no, the casinos are totally cool with it as long as you don't, you know, take away too much money from them. Uh, So there's all this like level of intrigue and mystery uh, the hotel room, like him wrapping everything up in the sheets uh, and tying things off. We don't really understand what any of that means, but it had me super intrigued. Once the other characters start getting involved and then we do start to understand what his backstory is and then we don't actually get, in my opinion, satisfying payoff to all of these mysterious elements. That's where the film lost me. Yeah, I I guess just that for me during the first half when it has all of this like setup, I just really struggled to find an entry point into caring. Honestly, I think that a lot of the explanations, for instance, that he gives about how he counts cards, it it gets very technical at a certain point, and I think that's one of those things where you're either in it or you're not. And I never really found myself that connected with it. I, it just seemed like the first half of this movie was pretty aimless and because i didn't really find that much of value with the characters like i i think that isaac's performance is what guides me through most of that section not necessarily the the writing of the role that he is playing and all of that i think really impeded me from kind of giving myself over to the movie because like i said it just felt so aimless and I was struggling with the lack of momentum I felt the movie was presenting me at that point. See, I think maybe for me, before the idea that this was aimless settled in, I was more so focusing on, oh, this sounds very promising. Like, there's a lot of promise here in terms of the setup and where we're going. But like I said, once this whole revenge scheme starts getting into introduced in terms of William Tell meeting uh, Kirk, spell with a C, as they mentioned many, many times in this movie. And this surrogate family that starts to formulate between him, Sheridan, LaLinda, played by Tiffany Haddish here. I didn't buy any of that. Like, I didn't buy the chemistry between any of these characters. I thought Ty Sheridan was woefully miscast. Like, The way that that character specifically is written, in my opinion, seems to be skewering a little bit younger. But Ty Sheridan looks like a full grown man. And I never understood the whole I'm going to take you under my wing, introduce you to this world. I'm going to give to you a whole new life because I carry this guilt inside of me and I want to do right by you. Like Ty Sheridan. I'm sorry. He looks I know he's like in his mid 20s. He looks like he's 30 years old. I just didn't find it believable. I had a problem there in particular with the meeting of their two characters to when they're like on their sort of like road trip segment where they're sort of bickering. It, it got there so quickly. It was very jarring because, yeah, it, it did not feel like there was any established connection or or any sort of lead up to a, like a, a genuine sort of understanding between the two of them. So on top of Sheridan's appearance, I think 
the pacing and, and sort of the execution of that segment, that section is a little kind of off also. The, the pool scene is good. I like the dialogue uh, like where the they're at the too. pool side. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Mm hmm. That that that's a good scene. I felt like between the two of them where I actually probably got the strongest bonding connection between the two of them. But then also then there's a scene in the hotel room later on in the film where William gets very suspicious of Kirk and, you know, a different side of William starts to come out in that scene, which once again added another layer of intrigue to his character that I found to be all the more fascinating. But at the same time, I was a little confused as to why that scene was happening, what he was suspicious over. And it just seemed like the plot was starting to lose me because the character relationships had not been well-developed up until that point. No. And like Josh pointed out, this is a character study, and in so many of the Schrader movies in this mold are character studies. There's not a lot of terrific insight given into Tell's character, and so when he does do something that's proactive, it is a little confusing because we're not really let in to why he's doing that, why he wants to do that. Like It's pretty muddled for being a character study. Uh, Yeah, I mean, man, Ty Sheridan, I think, is pretty bad in this movie i have to be yeah. honest and yeah. it pains me to say that because i like ter- ty sheridan i think he could be really good but i think it is the role itself that is just so flat and he's given this motivation that like i don't really care it sounds ridiculous to begin with this whole like revenge plot that he wants to do and the movie sort of has acknowledgement that it's ridiculous but it also takes it seriously and it as that it's supposed to also be like the source of some emotional catharsis with these characters and that was just never believable i do totally admit to that i think at the same time though you talk about that scene between the two of them in the bedroom I think it is a very well-crafted scene of tension. Like, I understand that Tell is somebody who likes to have control over a situation, and he's introduced to this kid that is throwing him curveballs, and he's, you know, he tortured people. He knows how to get information out of people and become intimidating. And I liked that how that scene was crafted. How we got there, okay, was a little bit bumpy. I didn't fully believe all of it, but in the moment, it really worked for me. I mean, what really sells that scene in the moment is Oscar Isaac's performance. And I don't have any complaints about his performance in this movie. He's got actually a number of scenes in this that I find to be so captivating. I I think a lot about the scene where he tells, I think it's Kirk, um, at at a table about his past. And he opens up to him about how there is no, I believe he says something along the lines of, there is no forgiveness for what we did. And you can just see that this mask that he wears, this calm, cool, collected persona uh, that doesn't let on with emotion. Like he, you could see him starting to crack in that scene, fighting back tears, shaking, quivering just ever so slightly. It's really, really internalized great work that's like brimming beneath the surface for him that like I, I genuinely thought there were like so many moments like that in this movie where Oscar Isaac was doing really, really phenomenal work. But those scenes where he is a bit lighter, he is supposed to be having, I guess, like this rapport with Tiffany Haddish or with Ty Sheridan, and it's like meant to be played for laughs to like show that he's opening up a bit more. Those were the scenes that I actually found to be inauthentic and kind of awkward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, I have to be honest that I have sort of struggled to really fall in love with Tiffany Haddish again after 
uh, girls trip. I think that she is decent in this movie, but it, I do agree with you, Matt, that it seems like she doesn't really have that much chemistry with Oscar Isaac. And honestly, I found that she had more chemistry with Ty Sheridan in this movie than with her like actual love interest. And yeah, she just felt kind of stilted to me in the role. Like, I don't think she was like necessarily all that terrible, but I was sort of wanting a lot more from her in this part. And it's interesting, too, because I really liked her in um, the Andrea Burloff film, The Kitchen. Yeah, she was okay. It's not as dark and heavy as this necessarily, but she fit in more with the tone of that film than I feel like she does here. And I feel like a lot of that is because, honestly, I I just don't know what Paul Schrader saw in her for this role. It, it does seem like she's not right for it, and yet he tried to work with her uh, to make it fit. And I, I, I really I agree with you, Josh. I think the chemistry is not there, and I think it is actually a case of not that she's a bad actress, because I don't think she gives a bad performance necessarily. I think it's actually just a, you know, a case of bad casting. Like like with Sheridan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's and then you put all three of them. You put all three of them together then, and it's like. it's not working. Like, I'm not really feeling the emotional connection that I should feel because then when there are stakes introduced in the third act and a pretty horrific moment happens to, you know, one of the characters that's, you know, I I didn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. I really did not feel anything at all, like emotionally. Um, And then not to mention Willem Dafoe, who was an actor that when you cast him, especially in this where he's playing the antagonist, there's a certain level of expectation that arrives with that because of the type of caliber of actor that Willem Dafoe is. I almost feel like that that also was a disappointment because he doesn't get much to do in this movie. Like, instead, I really wish they had gone with instead, like, maybe like a character actor or a television actor or someone where you can just go, oh yeah, I've seen him before, but it doesn't carry that weight of expectation of, oh, I'm expecting a great performance from this. Yeah, I mean, I think Schrader has a history of using Defoe in lots of different kinds of roles. And sometimes they're not the juiciest and sometimes maybe they could have been played better by someone else. I think this is a case of, I think he's fine when he's there, but he could have been given a lot more to do. Also, he's, barely in the film exactly doesn't help yeah yeah it's a very very small small role it's it feels more like paul schrader just called on the phone and said hey can you do me a favor and and shoot for like three days <laughs> just yeah my yeah yeah. <laughs> One scene will be at the podium. The other scene is going to be flashbacks. The other scene is in the house. Uh, three days. You good? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I agree. He doesn't really have that much to do. It didn't really bother me quite so much um i don't know maybe that's just a personal preference thing i i do agree that that character once again doesn't really have that much going on the page he's really just a really like a figurehead in terms of an endpoint for this story so there's not really much invested even in the narrative construction for that character but you know this one defoe she he showed up the it's the strangest yeah. at Eternity's Gate reunion I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also another thing, too, that also really disappointed me was there was this buildup towards the ending. And, okay, I admit that when stuff happens off screen, it can be very, very powerful and really well done. 
While I did not need this movie to necessarily show me the graphic, brutal, probably very horrific violence in detail, I would have liked to have seen the actual payoff to the ending of this movie. And I think that what Paul Schrader did was he went with a much more mature decision that's also a bit more uh, introspective, gets you thinking a little bit more. And I can appreciate that. But with so much disappointment in the second half of this movie, I was at least hoping to get some sort of catharsis. And I'm sorry, but finger touching like it's E.T. just didn't do it for me at the end. Yeah. (laughs) Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Uh, he's generally good at delivering on a violent catharsis when it comes to these kinds of movies. And Right? Yeah. I, I applaud the decision. Like on paper, it sounds good, but but I agree with you. And also, man, he really, like, the ending in the prison cell. I was like, when are we getting the credits? When are those credits coming up? <laughs> that shot was holding on forever. He loves <laughs> holding on that time. prison cell shot. This this ending he did in American Gigolo and Light Sleeper. And I, I get it. I, he really likes this this type of resolution, but I do think this was, like, the weakest execution. It just – you're right, maybe the lack of violence. But by the time we get there, it's just – it's kind of numbing, unfortunately. See, I don't think I really had that much of an issue with like us not seeing the resolution with the Defoe character and all that violence. Because I think the movie sort of makes a point that at least Tell sort of doesn't really like to use violence because it is tied up in so many things that are troublesome in his past. And even when he is in that scene with... With Kirk in his room, you know, it walks right up to becoming very graphic and violent, but it doesn't go there. And I think that mm-hmm. he's obviously a character that will utilize violence when necessary, but doesn't like to indulge in it. So it felt 
thematically relevant to not show it at the end. I think the bigger problem is just it's tied up with the Kirk character that we just don't care about. I think that's the bigger issue with that for me, but I didn't necessarily have a problem with not seeing it because it felt at least right for the character and the tone and the themes that the movie was working with. That's true. I agree with you, Josh, in terms of, and also Danila, like what you said there in terms of like it being on paper, the right decision for the reasons that you said, Josh, but Mm. I also agree with you, Josh, that I think that not having that connection to the Kirk character does hurt it. And I can't deny that. Like, I I do think that that is a weakness of the overall story and particularly the second half. And I think it is just one of those things where in the moment I sort of just went with it. And, And as I said at the top, I think that the second half of this movie does sort of seem like it finds a goal for itself. We can argue whether or not it's an effective goal to be chasing. But after the first half, which to me was just so aimless and meandering and I was like desperate to find something, I guess maybe it dangling something in front of me being like, OK, this is where we're heading to someplace. I was like, OK, thank you. Some some rails that I can attach myself to so I can sort of navigate myself through this story, because at the beginning I was having a very, very tough time with it. I mentioned earlier at the top of this review that. There are a lot of similarities, I feel like, between this film and First Reformed. And, you know, as anyone who has seen a lot of Paul Schrader films can attest to, there's a lot of uh, similarities between all of his works. But First Reformed having such a high profile as it did and being so widely seen, I do think that it did hurt this movie a little bit too much that we're getting voiceover of the character writing in a journal and... There's just like these similarities between the two characters in terms of, okay, it's another story about redemption, like sort of, I don't know, did you guys feel like, you know, coming off of a film, like I said, that had just such a big reception as First Reform did that he should have maybe tried something radically different instead of like carrying over similarities that admittedly are in other works of his, but... Do you think he just should have tried to, to have done a left turn? I don't think you can get Trader to do a left turn. <laughs> turn. He seems pretty, pretty set in his ways of what he I, wants to do. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the extent of him doing a left turn would be just dressing up these themes in different clothing, like a, like a Mishima movie where there's different cultural element, different, you know, dramatic elements, more biographical, sure. but, but it's still, he's still dealing with those themes that seem to really fascinate him. So I don't know if he has a real, a real left turn in him that like would sustain his interest. I, I guess for me, like, like I said, I, while it doesn't bother me that, you know, you can find these, connecting uh tropes in a lot of his other works to me like i just said like just coming off of a film like that that got him his first oscar nomination (laughs) you know it's like i don't want to see i don't want to see a repeat at that point Mm -hmm. and that and i recognize that that's a personal thing and i know that there are people who like these elements and you know are fascinated by these characters that he creates and they want to keep seeing him doing it over and over again that's totally fine but this was like the one time where I felt like, okay, if there's ever a time where you're going to like try something different, like do something, do something different. And to your point, guys, you know, the man is almost 80 years old. He's probably not capable of doing anything different. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, you know, you mentioned the voiceover and how it reminded you of 
first Reformed, the thing that it reminded me, first of all, actually more than that movie, was Taxi Driver. So, oh, well, yeah. I mean, of course. Yeah. So but that's just an example of how this is something that I think is just woven into the types of stories that Trader likes to tell, the types of characters he likes to investigate, and how he presents them. So I kind of feel like, yeah, there are similarities to the very previous movie that he just made. But it, as you said, Matt, it's sort of a through line throughout everything that he works on, whether he's directing it or not. I guess the problem that I just run into is I find myself then doing these inferior comparisons when I don't want to have to be doing that. But because the works are so closely tied together and released so closely together, I have no choice but to. And then as a result, it, this is just going to look inferior. Yeah, it doesn't help that he makes sort of self-referential nods the more he movies he makes like this to the past mm-hmm. movies that really like puts it in your face to like have to sift through and be like, well, it's not quite at this level. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. It like it puts me like in an unfair position almost. And I do this with other filmmakers, too. Like, I mean, it's not exclusive to Paul Sherrod, uh, Schrader, you know, mm. but at the same time, I never, ever like I never like doing that. <laughs> so I want to be able to take each thing on its own terms. But, you know, sometimes the filmmakers just make it hard for me to do so. What did you guys think of the score to this? Because I thought that the score and the soundtrack, too, because all the songs were uh, done for this movie by Robert Levin Bean. I really, really liked the atmosphere and the mood that was created by the score for this. What, What did you guys think? I liked it at first. I thought that it did create a really good like environment and, and atmosphere, as you said, Matt, I, I think that it really was a nice tone setter. There was a certain point where it was like, they were just like starting to sigh in the music, like vocally <laughs> sigh. And that was when I was like, Oh, like the, okay, like the breathing. Yeah. Like, oh, see, like I thought that was very unique and interesting because I, I, you know, I kept thinking to myself, I don't really often hear that in scores that much. And I was, you know, I, it got me thinking like, OK, how does this tie into the William Tell character, a character who is internalizing so much and sometimes just needs to, you know, breathe a sigh of relief or maybe he's just tired or, you know, and it just like kind of got me thinking more about the character in that way, which I I really I really appreciated that. Um, I, uh, I'm glad you did. I, th- <laughs> <laughs> I thought the score we keep to, to the point you just made, Matt. I think the score was good by itself, but Bean also did the score for Schrader's Light Sleeper, and it's very similar. And so whenever I heard the score here, it made me think of the score for that movie, which I think is more effective. If I remember correctly, I think Light Light Sleeper was done by his father, actually. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it was done by his father, and this is the first time that he's ever worked on a, a film, actually. And I'm pretty sure it was because of the collaboration he had with... Uh, his father on Light Sleeper that he reached out to him. Okay, well, he did a good job emulating it because it really reminded me of that. And so I in sure. my head, I kept going there every time I heard the music. Another thing, too, and I, I, I'm i sorry, I keep pointing out like all these things that just like stuck out, stood out to me as flaws here. But uh, did you guys also get the sense? I know we talked about the final shot of the movie, but did you guys also get the sense that there were some shots that just lasted longer than they needed to? And it was like, where where's the edit? where's the cut what's happening here why are we still lingering on this like i'm thinking of the scene in particular where he is in one of his hotel rooms and he's like opening up the suitcase on the bed and he's getting ready to 
uh, covered the whole room in sheets, and the camera is like uh, panning and following him and tracking him, and it just it holds for such a long time. Uh, you know, did you guys like you know get a sense of any of that that the movie was just oddly paced at times? I mean, I did feel like it was oddly paced. I don't know if it's, I don't know if like the specific shot length was what contributed it to me. I just think that the storytelling itself is very deliberate and and methodical. And I think that sometimes it can work for a story and sometimes it's a struggle to get things moving. And that was more so waning on me than, and I'm sure that the shot lengths contributed to that, that overall feeling. But I just think that the, the very nature of the pacing itself, just in the way that the story unfolded felt like it was moving rather slowly to me. I also found myself going back and forth on whether or not, if I actually liked the cinematography of this movie in general like there were times where i did like its pristine digital look in the casinos and like i thought the colors were really popping but then there were other times where i was just thinking to myself oh no this is starting to look like a b like a b-level movie well then you get those like that very weird flashback uh with like that oh my god like double fish the the, the vr kind of like experience yeah oh that was let me tell you something I went. I, that's another thing I went back and forth on, where I was like, I don't know if I like this necessarily, but it was so unique and so different, and just such an odd choice that I just appreciated that even if it's a swing and a miss, that it was just a big swing and a miss. You know, I like I I I got to give him credit for doing something different, and you know, a lot of times whenever we have flashbacks, there's always going to be obviously like some sort of a you know, editing transition or a change in film stock or something to, you know, tell the viewer this is not the current timeline, right? (laughs) To do something that outrageous and so bold. Yeah, I think the more I think about it, the more I say to myself, uh, hey, you know what? He could have shot this in black and white. (laughs) He could have done he could have done any number of things that we've seen other filmmakers did before. But you know what? He didn't. He did this. (laughs) I liked it. I was I was a fan of it, I think. I think it was the most sort of inventive stylistic thing that was in the movie because, like you said, a lot of the stuff in the present day kind of sometimes veered on, on just being flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do agree with that. That A lot of the filmmaking I just thought was pretty benign, to be honest. It didn't really feel like it had that much flair to it. And those flashback sequences... I, they're polarizing. I, I'm with you, man. I don't know if it all necessarily worked, but I did appreciate the effort at least. I also really liked that scene when they were in like that lighted garden or whatever that place was. And, you know, there's like this shot where the camera like moves around a lot and it goes to this very high overhead shot. And it just really it was relatively simple, but just the imagery itself was very ca- uh, captivating. And I did appreciate that, too. That was a nice scene. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts on the card counter. Danilo, we'll pass it over to you first. Um, I think Paul Schrader, inconsistent, uh, consistent with his themes, I should say, inconsistent sometimes with the execution. And I think this is a case of one being maybe not so high on the scale of his films. I think there were some good things there, but... I think the presentation, some of the casting decisions, some of the writing uh, just held this one back. And so I don't really have anything to add that we haven't already touched on. But, 
Yeah, I keep coming around to the phrase mixed bag because I think that's exactly what this is. Josh? Uh, two quick things. One is not really like necessarily of uh, anything that's in the movie, but it's more around the movie. I just found it interesting to watch this film and try to figure out what scenes were shot during the extreme lockdown of last year? Because there are some <laughs> scenes where, like, they're in a diner, and it is the most sparsely populated diner I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to figure that stuff out was just, like, another layer that I was, like, just watching the movie with. But again, that's, like, outside the movie. But if you watch it, try to figure out when they had, you know, social distancing protocols. I think you'll have a fun time with that. I mean, I have to imagine... I, I don't know. Like, I, I was thinking about this, but the production, I think, only shot with those restrictions, I think, for six days, if I remember correctly. I, I could be wrong about that, but maybe it was a little bit more. I, I A part of me has to believe that the scene between Willem Dafoe and Oscar Isaac was one of them. Yeah, like there are definitely some scenes where they have a lot of more a lot more people in there, but there are many sequences where it just seems like it is the, our main characters and the framing is pretty close on them and you can't see anybody else and when you do see the rest of the casino it's like one person at a slot machine. I just... Yeah, like uh like uh, okay, I'm sure you guys have been to to a casino before even at two in the morning, whatever time it is, it ain't that empty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. there's like scenes where they're at the bar, him and LaLinda, and they're having a drink or something. And I agree with you, Josh. You look in the background, there's barely anyone in there and no one else is at this bar. And it's like, this must be the lamest casino in the country. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, it's not really pertinent to like the subject matter of the film but it was just one of those things i was thinking about as, as i was watching it's like oh there's not that many people in this casino they probably couldn't afford to have that many people there at that time you know what then then again i also have to say to myself not every casino in the world is atlantic city so maybe i should be giving a little bit more leeway to this argument actually sure sure and it's one of those things where i don't think it like helps or hurts the movie it was just an observation that i had that i found amusing sure and then like I feel like this movie definitely does have so many flaws to it. I I agree with that. But there is just something about the second half in particular where it just sort of seemed like it was getting into a rhythm that I could vibe with more. And while it's not perfect, I still think that the Kirk character in particular is like the really big weak point, especially with so much emotion hanging on it. It just sort of seemed like there was a more confidence in the storytelling at that point. And I was willing to go along with it more so. I think Oscar Isaac is also a big part of that. His performance throughout the entire movie is really good, and I very much appreciated that. And it kind of got to a little bit more of a quote-unquote entertaining finale, like as entertaining as Paul Schrader can present a general audience. And it worked for me for the most part. Like, it's not perfect, but I did find myself kind of jiving with the movie a lot more than I thought I was going to. And I appreciated it for that, even if it was a pretty flawed execution. Oscar Isaac is really good. I like the score. I like some of the creative decisions that Paul Schrader utilizes in this. I do not like the character dynamics in this. I think the writing is also pretty flawed when it's not focusing on just the character of William Tell, which I admit that Paul Schrader does a really, really good job of just showing the guilt of this character um, in terms of also like what does he want? 
you know, Josh, I'll give you some credit in regards to the first half of this movie. It is very unclear what William Tell wants. And we as an audience then, I fully admit, can definitely get lost then in this um, kind of aimless plot of, okay, why are we following this guy? What does he want? We don't know. (laughs) We don't know what he wants. Um, Because the movie is leaving him as a mystery until we do get like halfway through the movie. But I was still on board with the mood, the atmosphere, the intrigue, the mystery of it all. And it was all really mysteriously well done to the point that I was like, okay, great setup. It's taking us a while, but I'm, I'm, I'm in <laughs> like, how is it going to pay off? And the payoff for me was very, very disappointing in the end, even though like, like we said earlier, I think on paper, um, it works, especially for the kind of story that Paul Schrader is attempting to tell here. Um, just for me personally, it did not. So uh, Danilo, I'll use your phrase, mixed bag overall. I'm going to lose half of my chips, take half of my chips home with a five out of ten. Josh? I am actually going to land at a six out of ten. I like I mostly kind of enjoyed it. It's not like a very strong recommendation, and I think the first half does really take a while for me to get invested in it, but like I, I I dug it overall. Like, I will never say this is a great movie, but it sort of had just enough elements to push me into the mildly recommending territory. You know, very, it's not a lot of enthusiastic praise on this one, I grant you. But like, overall, I I walked away feeling like I had enough of a good time with it. Danila? Uh, I am going to go with a five out of 10 as well. Uh, as far as these types of films that Trader categorizes, um, as his man in a room films, I think this is probably his weakest to date, uh, unfortunately, but I like all the reasons we've hit on before. I think it just ultimately just can't quite seem to determine which way it wants to go and it ends up kind of splitting the difference. All right. So in terms of any Oscar potential for the card counter, what are we looking at here? Are we looking at anything? I mean, the movie had its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival. It screened at Telluride. It is being released now a week later. Which says to me that the studio doesn't seem to have much confidence in this as far as an awards player is concerned. But the movie has gotten better than I anticipated strong reviews overall, which leads me to wonder, you know, could critics push this into any kind of a category for any form of awards consideration? What that might be, I honestly have no idea. I don't think that Paul Schrader is all of a sudden going to become a staple in the screenplay category now, the way that sometimes, you know, on your first nomination, all of a sudden they're more inclined to welcome you back. But Stranger Things have happened. Josh, what do you think? Uh, I think this movie is uh, dead in the water when, when it comes to Oscar prospects. I really think that the only things it could even really contend for are actor and screenplay. And yes. I, I don't really see uh, anything happening for Oscar Isaac in this movie. Like, he's good, but I just don't think that it's enough of a showcase for him. And I agree with you, Matt, that I don't think that just because Schrader just got that nomination for First Reform, that means he's suddenly welcome into the club. I mean, the fact that it took him that long to get that nomination, and let's be real, he kind of just barely got that nomination, if we really (laughs) got to be honest. He really kind of got in there by the skin of his teeth. I don't really see those set of circumstances happening for this movie. Yeah, he's a little mercurial, too. I don't think that's going to help his chances 
when it comes to him posting on social media and stuff like that. Uh, assuming this movie does have a chance, I think that would sort of hinder it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy he got his uh, his Oscar nomination for First Reformed. It did feel like one of those things where it's like, okay, we did this, we can move on now, yeah. sort of thing. But you know, yeah, if he ever makes another one again at the same level, I'm I'm all for it. You know, I think the guy still, as I mentioned earlier, you know, comes from an era of filmmakers that, quite honestly, I feel that the business has said more often than not that they are just not welcome anymore in this industry, which is very, very sad to say the least. So there is a part of me that still is appreciative of this kind of filmmaking, of this kind of writing. And I want to see more filmmakers uh, get the opportunity to craft characters and stories like this. But yeah, I agree. This isn't going anywhere. No, absolutely. absolutely Maybe the next one. Maybe the next one. Who knows? I I genuinely would like to see some critics groups mention the score. I really, really would. I don't. Do I think it's going to happen? Probably not. But I, that would make me happy. But, you know, that's one of the stronger elements for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. OK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Josh, where can they find you on the Internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Danilo Castro. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Danilo S. Castro. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. Well, you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Okay, you think when this goes up, I should post it on Paul Schrader's Facebook? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's back on Facebook now. He said that they have let him out of jail. Paul, uh, a slight criticism about your latest. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.